It's great to see you guys this morning. Uh, if you are uh, a kid and you want to hang out with some other kids, Miss Jeannie is back there. She's raising her hand. Feel free to go hang. Uh, sorry, adults. You know, I know it sounds really exciting, but you're here with me. So my name's Tony. If you're new visiting Wellspring, I want to welcome you. If you've been here for a long time, I want to welcome you too. Uh, so we're excited to be here. And what I want to do today, we don't always do this, but I want to take a moment this morning Uh, And I know some of you are going to cringe at this and some of you will be excited. It sort of depends on how introverted or extroverted you are. Uh, But I want you to do is turn to someone next to you. And if you need to form a little uh, trinity, do that. Uh, Don't don't leave leave someone sort of isolated in a pew. Uh, And just say, what is one way that you experienced the life of God this week? Is there maybe one thing you're grateful for this week? So I want you to turn to a person next to you. If you're sitting by yourself, make sure to loop in with someone. I'm going to give you a minute. One thing you're grateful to God for this week or one way that God gave life to you this week. I know it's awkward. Just do it. Do it. Take the risk. If you haven't switched, you should switch. So you want to switch if you haven't switched? If you're done, just look at me and then I'll know. That way I don't have to flick the lights off and on. All right, I'm going to bring you back, bring you back. See, that wasn't as painful as you maybe thought, was it? All right, I'm going to bring you back, bring you back. All right. Maybe shout out one or two things. One thing you were grateful for this week or a way you experienced life of God. Sort of a quick shout out. Anyone? Good friends. Good. Yeah. But family? Yeah. Others? Helping others. Cool. Health. There was a bunch going on right here. Sisters. Okay. God's word. Awesome. Okay. Rain. There you go. Says the ecologist. Yeah, there you go. All right. So a lot of ways that we're experiencing uh, the gratefulness, goodness of God, it's awesome to hear. So we're in chapter 11. If you've been journeying with us through John, we've been at it since May. Uh, we're in chapter 11 now, so we've been plugging along for a little bit. We are in our third message in chapter 11. So if you weren't here the last couple of weeks, let me catch you up. So Jesus is nearly stoned at the end of chapter 10. He escapes, goes to the eastern side of the river Jordan. There, he gets this awesome reception. People are excited to see him. A little bit into that, we don't know how long, he gets a message that uh, his friends, uh, particularly Lazarus, is sick. But he also has friends with Mary and Martha, who are sisters to Lazarus. And they're in Bethany, and they're two miles outside of Jerusalem. He was nearly stoned in Jerusalem. So there's this invitation now to go back into the place where he is most threatened and most vulnerable. Some of the disciples, particularly Thomas, is like, we'll go and die with you. And it's sort of this like, okay, this is serious. This could be really dangerous. They go uh, over to Bethany. Uh, Mary and Martha are grieving because their brother has died and he's been in the tomb for a few days now. Uh, Martha runs out to greet Jesus and she's like, if only you had been there. And he's like, oh, you'll experience the life of God. She's like, I know I will at the end of days, at the resurrection. He's like, no, 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 I am the resurrection and the life. 
right? And then he keeps moving towards the tomb. And as he's getting closer, right, then Mary comes out and greets him. And she's like, you know, if only you had been there. And there's this moment, you know, where Jesus sort of overcome with emotion, just weeps in the presence of Mary and Martha and the crowd that has come from Jerusalem to Bethany. And as they approach the tomb, this is what John writes. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So verse 38, Jesus comes to the tomb, right? He's deeply moved, right? That's what it starts with. Once more deeply moved, because we've already seen earlier in the chapters, Jesus loves Lazarus. We've seen that he's deeply moved and he even weeps. And again here, he's deeply moved, right? And this is a picture of God. This is the son of God taking on human flesh. What does he do, right? He's affected by the suffering of his friends, But he doesn't just sort of sit in utter despair in the corner and just weep, right? He moves towards Lazarus. He's not wallowing in utter despair, but he also isn't putting putting some sort of band-aid of blind optimism on the situation. No, that's fine, because it's not. And he tells Martha and the others what to do, right? And he's like, He's not passive. He's not waiting for someone else to act. He is God in flesh, moved by the suffering of the world, moving towards the tomb. Now, sometimes we imagine in this situation, he says, move the, th- move the stone. And then we imagine this big, like, circular stone being rolled, like Sisyphus, right? It's like, roll the stone. But that's actually not what graves looked like in the Middle East. It's like this rectangular stone. So they would have to kind of push it, like slide it. And also the cave, we don't know exactly what this tomb is like. We don't know if it's a family tomb or an individual tomb. What we do know is Jesus tells them to move this rectangular stone out of the way so they can have access to Lazarus. And obviously they're like, yes, of course we'll do it, right? No. Martha's like, but, but Lord, uh," you know, like four days, it's going to smell. This is going to be a really negative experience. Jesus, let me, just, let me just help you out here. Don't do this. But Lord. Now, just as a word uh, about sort of first century burial practices in the Middle East, right? So sometimes we think of burial practices in terms of like the Egyptians and embalming, right? So embalming is about preservation. Uh, in the Middle East, uh, at least in Israel, they didn't do embalming. What they would do is they would actually use spices to cover over the smell of the decomposing body, right? So there is no preservation happening. So Martha's like, hey, I know how this works. This is not going to be a pretty sight. 
then this is Jesus's response. Verse 40. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Now, sometimes we think of belief in terms of like, you know, addition. Like, I believe that two plus two is four, right? So it's says information belief. Fundamentally, belief in the New Testament is a little more about trust. So do you trust me? If you trust me, you will see the glory of God. Now, this statement sort of echoes back to two previous statements in chapter 11. Verse 25, uh, Jesus says to Martha, he says this, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Whoever lives by believing in me, right, trusting in me, will never die. Do you believe this? Right? And then we know Martha has this beautiful confession about Jesus as king, as Messiah, as God. And what Jesus is doing here, he's sort of saying, hey, you know what? If you trust me, if you believe me, you will see the enactment of the words I told you a few minutes before, that I am the resurrection and the life. Do you trust me? What you will see, right? You will see the glory of God. And that isn't sort of like God or Jesus is some sort of like needy, lonely, uh, you know, middle schooler saying, oh, I just want some attention, right? That is not what is going on here glory of God is you will see the reality of who God is enacted on earth. It also echoes back to verse 4. So back on the other side of the Jordan, they're worried about, ah, should we go back to Judea? Jesus says this, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Right, so with both of these statements in mind, right, what we see is that Jesus is saying, hey, I am going to enact what I have said already this day and in this chapter. In response, right, Martha, or maybe the disciples, they remove the stone. They're like, okay, we want to see this. I guess we're willing to take this risk because this could get really ugly really quick. They have their doubts, but they go for it. Now, Jesus looks up at this point, and then verse 41, 42, he says this. It's kind of interesting. He's like, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. All right, so a few interesting points here. It's sort of an interesting verse. First is this. Jesus has clearly already talked to God about this. So some theologians, right, it says heard, past tense. So he's already talked to them. Some theologians, N.T. Wright included, say, hey, you know when Jesus delayed his journey by two days? Remember, he's on the eastern side of the Jordan. He gets news. Hey, this person you love is dying. Some people think, including him, that Jesus took those days actually to pray for Lazarus, for this situation, and that during that time, he already heard God say, I am going to listen to your prayer. I am going to work. And then he goes into Bethany knowing that God has already heard his prayer. But regardless of when he prays, we know that Jesus' response to suffering, to this problem that they encounter, to this person that, he is, that is sick and dying, that he loves, his first response is what? To pray. He turns to the Father. He intercedes on behalf of one that he loves. And what does God do? God hears. He's not calling out into some endless abyss or distant black hole. 
Friend, he's calling to a loving father who hears his prayer. Second, it's interesting, right? He talks to the crowd or talks to God for the benefit of the crowd, right? Sort of this weird moment where he's like, uh, you know, sort of in front of people like, God, I'm talking to you for them, you know, and everyone's like, well, this is kind of an interesting moment. It's kind of a dynamic prayer experience. Now, he doesn't do this in order to, because he needs to speak loudly or he needs to do it in front of people. He already knows that God has heard his prayer. He's doing this so that they know where the power and the life comes from. Jesus is trying to make clear, hey, this isn't about me. This is about the, you knowing that the power to work life in the world comes through the Father. Now, it's interesting, too. The third observation is Jesus actually doesn't ask for anything here. Did you notice that? It's a prayer without an ask. It's fundamentally thankfulness. He just thanks God in front of all these people so that they know where the power comes from. R.H. Fuller has this great line. He says this, Jesus lives in constant prayer, in communication with his Father. When he engages in vocal prayer, he's not entering as we do from a state of non-praying to prayer. He's only giving overt expression to what is the ground and base of his life all along. He emerges from non-vocal to vocal prayer here in order to show that the power he needs for his ministry and here specifically for the raising of Lazarus depends on the gift of God. Right? We've seen this throughout the Gospel of John, right? The Father says, do this, say this, and Jesus is like, yes. Time and time again, it's Jesus' response to the action of the Father that leads to the life-giving presence of God on earth. Jesus offers this prayer of thanks, and in verse 43, he says, Lazarus, come out. Jesus has already said in verse 25 that he is the resurrection and the life. Jesus has already said that if you believe in me, though you die, you will experience life. It says in verse 40, trust me and you will see the glory of God. You will see God enfleshed in front of you. What happens? Lazarus comes out. Right? And then Lazarus says, take his, you know, the, the linen off him. So in the first century, when a, a body was laid in a tomb, they would put a piece of cloth, and the end of the cloth would be at the feet. So then the person would be laid down, and then they would wrap the cloth over their head and onto the front of their body. Right? And then they would tie the feet, they would tie the arms, and then they would tie the jaw in place so it would stay together. So Lazarus gets up and he's sort of like, you know, coming out like this because he can't move very well, right? So then he says, hey, help the dude out. They come up. They remove the linen and the strips. Right now, up to this point, Jesus has done lots of signs. Right, he's, chapter 2, remember the first sign, right? He makes wine at a wedding in Cana, not simply so that people can have a great party, but as a, a way of saying, hey, I am the one who initiates the future feast in the kingdom of God. Right, he makes bread in the wilderness to remind them that he is God who provides manna in the wilderness. He heals a man who cannot walk. He heals a man born blind. But here, right, 
Jesus tackles the ultimate experience of creaturely limitation, death. Now, some of you know, a few weeks ago, my aunt passed away. I went out to Chicago, right? And you go into a funeral, and this person you love is laying in a casket. And my cousin is standing there, and this is her mom, and the grandchildren are there, and they're sad. Grandma is gone. And it's this experience of, you can't fix anything. There is nothing I could do. I think we experience that with death, right? Death is this ultimate experience of human limitation and powerlessness. And yet into this moment, Jesus brings resurrection life into the ultimate experience of human limitation, the glory of God, the life-giving presence of God comes in and brings what we are unable to bring, resurrection power the life-giving breath of God. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about in Jesus' interaction with Martha, he says, you know, they're going to experience life. And she's like, yes, I know at the end of days, we will experience resurrection. And Jesus says, no, no, I am the resurrection and life. Where I go, life goes. It's not simply about the end of time, but wherever Jesus is, the life-giving presence of God follows. Marian Meyer Thompson is a uh, theologian at Fuller. She writes this in her commentary on John. Mortal and frail, Lazarus represents all human beings faced with the threat of death. But as one who received life, Lazarus represents all who are given life by the one who has and gives life. Jesus' raising of Lazarus to life is the climactic sign of Jesus' life-giving power. The raising of Lazarus redounds to God's glory because it reveals God's life-giving purposes in the world. I love this line. This account puts, into, puts the assertion of John 13 into narrative form. John 13, 313, 316, holy cow. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, right? Jesus says this to Nicodemus and then he lives it out. He displays his power to bring life from death, to bring resurrection from the most absolute sort of human limitation, right? Beyond the grave, Jesus brings this life-giving power into this pocket of total powerlessness. This is a story that illustrates Jesus's power to do what he has said he was going to do throughout the gospel of John, bring life into the brokenness of our world. Now, as I was trying to think about this passage in light of modern life, right, in light of a situation where we're not standing outside of a cave, uh, we're trying to figure out, okay, so how does this translate into our world, our everyday grind, the dailiness of the lives that we walk? The first thing I was thinking about uh, was simply just about this theme of the life-giving power of God that we have seen throughout the gospel of John. Right, the very beginning of the Gospel of John, we see right, Jesus is the source of all life on earth. Right, John 1 through 5. 
in the beginning was the Word, right? Jesus, the Word made flesh. Right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, right? So Jesus is at the creation of all things. Not like God cobbled together a bunch of living things. God created life itself. The very existence, our breath, our being in this room was formed by God. God is the source of all life on earth. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So God, at the very beginning, forms life itself. God then takes on human life and enters into the darkness of our world. The pain, the suffering, the evil, the brokenness, the death that we experience. He wades into that mess and brings life and light. And we saw a few, you know, two sermons ago, that not only does he do that at the beginning, but at the end of time, he will also come into the mess of our existence, right? And he will bring the kingdom, and in that kingdom, he will bring life forevermore. Now, I think it's easy, though, to read a text like this and be like, oh, yeah, awesome. Like, God created all life. Agree. At the end of time, God will come, and he will resurrect all life. Like, agree, you know? And then at one moment, you know, somewhere around Bethany, he also brought this guy to life and think, yeah, I, I, can, I can agree with all of those statements. And I think that is like super important that we're able to agree with those things, but I think there's more here. Because this morning, I want to highlight how I think this passage actually speaks into the dailiness of our life, and particularly our life with Jesus. So imagine Martha and Mary, right? They experience in this moment the life-giving presence of God, not at the beginning, not at the end, but in the middle of their life. Jesus says that he is the resurrection and life, and wherever he goes, right, the life of God bursts forth. So I guess my question to you today is this. If Jesus is the life-giving presence of God, if communion and connection with him leads to life, transforming, resurrecting life, are you experiencing that? Are you experiencing life transformed in company with Jesus? I think sometimes we approach church and even God in sort of this behavior modification mode of like, I'm going to show up, I'm going to make sure my behaviors are in line, you know, I'm doing the right things. And that's good, you know, applaud that. But I also think that we can sidestep like the center that Jesus is actually the source of life. And the hope is not simply that our behaviors align with the kingdom, but that our hearts and lives are transformed in the presence of God. Now, this doesn't mean, right, that we wake up. Have you ever seen the Lego movie? My kids love Lego. You know, Emmett sings like, everything is awesome. You know, every day they wake up and they sing this song. And I think sometimes we think like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to wake up. I'm going to be super smiley and chipper. Um, 
But my point is not to say, hey, every morning we should wake up and be chipper and smiling and saying, everything is awesome. But I do think over time, if we cannot look back to our lives in the ways that we have been transformed into Jesus' image through the power of the Holy Spirit, something is off. Now, are there going to be ups and downs in that journey? Absolutely. But if you go for a year, five years, and you feel like you look back and you're like, I am not more hopeful. I am not more peaceful. I do not have more joy. The sins in my life are not more and more sort of off to the sides and less central to my identity. The idols that I carry are not sort of set aside at the foot of the cross, right? If you do not see transformation over time, something is wrong because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And that when we journey with him, we are transformed into his image. We experience the life-giving presence of God. And I guess I just wonder, as you come in this morning, what do you see in your life? Maybe to change the image a bit. Imagine a garden. And in this garden you go in and it's just weeds, it's brown. There's trash maybe around. You know, and God comes into this garden and he pulls the weeds. He tills the soil. He plants some seeds, you know, he waters, he gets rid of the trash. Maybe he puts up some fences and you watch as this garden goes from this abandoned uh, little plot of land to something that is flourishing. And not only flourishing for itself, but now it becomes a home to other creatures. Produce is produced and people feed off of it, right? The zucchinis are four feet long or whatever. (laughs) But the point is, your life should look like that garden, transformed over time. Is it? Do you see a change over time? I don't mean there's not ups and downs, but there should be transformation over time. Think about it for a second. What do you see? If you're honest, what do you see? As I was sort of thinking about this image in light of the passage, I was trying to think of like, what what are like a few responses we could have to God in the midst? I think one is like, Thank you, right? Jesus says in this passage, like in prayer, thank you, God, for hearing my prayer. I think one response we can have to God, if we look at our lives and we look back and we're like, oh my gosh, you've transformed me so much, we can say back to God, thank you. Or maybe you look at your life and you wonder, God, where are you? We can also have a prayer of God, I'm lost and you don't seem anywhere on the scene. And we can turn to God in the midst of that feeling of abandonment and be like, God, come. I think a third one can be help. Or God, I've lost my way. I need your help. I need your intervention. Thank you. Where are you? help. Our lives should be transformed by the life-giving presence of God over time. The second thing I want to just sort of highlight in this passage that I think is kind of startling is this dynamic between but Lord and the surprising presence of God. 
the surprising glory of God. Right? You have this interaction between Jesus and Martha where he's like, hey, you know what? Move the stone. And she's like, but, you know, uh, bad idea, Jesus. Right? Jesus invites her to action and she says, but Lord, I have a better idea here, you know? But she decides to trust him. And what happens when she trusts him? Right? She sees the glory of God. She sees Jesus for who he is. As I sort of prayed and reflected on this passage, I, I think that a lot of us are trapped in this but Lord dynamic. God is moving, God is inviting us, and we're like, but God, I have a better idea. Or God, well, if I do that, I, I'm afraid. Or what will people think of me? Or what if I fail? Or we're in this but Lord dynamic where we're like, ah, you know, I've been burned in the past. God, I cannot do that again. And so we have this resistance or we think maybe we can do it better. But Lord, listen to my idea. And I think there's an invitation to all of us, a twofold invitation. One is to stop doing certain things. Maybe we have patterns with our time, with our money, with our friendships, whatever. And Jesus is like, yeah, can you stop doing that? And then a start doing invitation. Like, hey, and as you stop doing that, can you start doing these things? As I was praying for this message, I saw this picture of this small fire. And this person comes over and just dumps this water on it. And this was the phrase that came to mind. We want the intimacy that Jesus experiences with the Father without the obedience that Jesus has to the Father's voice. We want the intimacy that Jesus has with the Father without the obedience that Jesus has to the Father's voice. God, I want to be close to you, but Lord... I was thinking about this in terms of just even the story of this church. Right, two years ago, this church was about to close, sort of on the threshold. And there's this image offered to the folks that were here at this time. Like, God is in a bulldozer in the corner, right? The church is a field, and they're in the other corner. And God is saying, will you give me the keys? Right, it's the perfect moment in a dying church to say, but Lord, what if it fails? What if it doesn't go well? What if, what if the thing I love is ruined? But instead, what did they do? Right, in this moment of beautiful faithfulness, they said, okay, Jesus, I will trust you. And what they have gotten to see is the glory of God. They have gotten to see the life-giving presence of God come into something that was dying and breathe life into it. I can guarantee you, if you go to those folks that were here at that time and you go and talk to them, they will tell you story upon story of God's transforming power. But it didn't happen because they thought, you know what, whatever. No, they had this choice. They experienced the invitation of God and then they had to say, yes. If we live in this sort of but Lord resistance, we miss out on the surprising glory of God. But when we're anchored in the love of Jesus, 
right? It's this foreness of Jesus for us in chapter 11. Like Jesus is going and going for us. Right? When we say yes, we get to see the surprising glory of God, the reality of God in the trenches of everyday life. Do you know God's invitation this morning to you? In the first century, it was to Mary and Martha, move that stone. What is God's invitation to you? Do you know? Two things. One, if you're not sure, I think one of the most amazing things about this season that historically is called Lent, it's a season of preparation leading up to Easter. Right? This is a season where we attune our voice to God. This is why fasting right, is a central theme of Lent. Fasting is not like, oh, I'm going to give up chocolate. I love chocolate. Right? That's not the point. The point is to give up things, fast from things, so that we make space for the speaking voice of God to fill that void and shape us into his image. That is why we fast. Not because God likes us to give, give up things that we like. Right? We fast from technology so that we're not just glued into a screen, but we're attending to the speaking voice of God. Right? We give up sweets. We give up certain things, physical things, food, so that we recognize our hunger for the sweetness of God in our life. Lent is a time when we fast so that we can hear the speaking voice of God and know God's invitation so that we can experience the resurrection power of Easter. What is God inviting you to? How is he inviting you to respond? God's invitation always leads to response. It's not like, oh, thank you. Boom, we, he invites us to respond. To that. What does it look like for you to respond? Lent is the season when we try and anchor ourselves, make space, create space for God to move and speak. Now, the last thing I want to talk about this morning as it sort of relates to our, our discipleship, our apprenticeship in Jesus' image, is what does it look like to practice the way of Jesus? I think it's easy to kind of read this story and think, this is all about Jesus, and it is. But this also can't be disconnected from our discipleship to Jesus, right? We are trying to follow in the footsteps of our rabbi, of Jesus, and be transformed into his image, so we dis can't disconnect the practices of Jesus, the example of Jesus, from how we follow him. So when we look at this text, what do we see? We see this constant, we see in this text and throughout John, this prayerful intimacy of Jesus with the Father. God speaks, Jesus does. God says, say this, he does it. There's this prayerful intimacy and it's through that intimacy, this connection, that Jesus then embodies the life-giving presence of God on earth. Right? It's through this connection that the, he then ends up being a faithful presence wherever he goes. Right? In chapter 11, what do we see? It leads to the life-giving uh, presence of God bringing Lazarus from the grave. In chapter 4, what do we see? We see it about Jesus intersecting a woman at the well and offering her hope. We are people who try and practice the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is this prayerful connection with the Father that informs what he does and what he says, that leads him to being a blessing on earth. 
for us as disciples, then we mimic that. We follow that. We imitate that and say, just as Jesus had this connection with the Father, we are invited to have a connection with the Trinity, with Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And through that connection, it informs then how we are a blessing in our families, in our workplaces, wherever we go. Right? Jesus, in the midst of being persecuted, nearly stoned, goes back into Bethany, the land where he is, you know, potentially in danger. What does he do? He prays for someone he loves and then sees God work through his prayer to bring a blessing to the person of Lazarus and his family. And as we enter into Lent, I was trying to think of like something super practical that we could do. That's not just on the fasting side, but also on the prayer side. So when you came in, you, would have given, you were, should have been given this little pray for five bookmark. And my invitation to you during Lent is to identify five people in your life that aren't experiencing much of Jesus these days and pray for them. As Jesus prayed for Lazarus, so we then pray for five people in our life that aren't experiencing much of Jesus, ideally locally around this area. And then the idea is pray for these people and see how God then invites you to be a faithful presence in their life. Take some time each day during Lent. Hey, who are these five people that God has put on my heart that he wants me to be a faithful presence to? People that aren't experiencing much of Jesus these days. Could be your kids, could be a coworker, could be anyone. Just say, God, help me to know how to love this person how to embody your life-giving presence in their life. Ash Wednesday starts on Wednesday. The first Sunday of Lent is next week. So in the next few days, in this week, think about who does God put on your heart that he wants you to bless? Now, as we enter into worship, we invite the worship team up talked about three different ways that this passage sort of speaks into everyday life. One is about the life-giving presence of God. One is about seeing the surprising glory of God. And the third one is about sort of entering into this place of being a faithful presence, a blessing in the world. And you'll notice, right, there's all these little baskets and a cross up here. And when you entered the room, you should have been given like just a little piece of paper. If you didn't, uh, we can hand them out. Maybe someone can grab a couple and we can hand them out. But if you, on that piece of paper, as we enter into the song, what we're going to do is we're going to sing this song, Good, Good Father. It's about the goodness of God. And my invitation to you during this song is to write on that little piece of paper the things that block you from receiving the life of God the but lords maybe that you're tempted to hold on to so that, that makes it so you don't embrace the invitation of God. Or maybe the things in your life that make it so that you're not quite the faithful presence that God wants you to be. And my invitation to you is to come up and set it in one of these baskets at the foot of the cross. To say, Jesus, in this season, I give this to you. Jesus, I give myself to you. So we're going to sing this song, and then as you feel led, I'm going to invite you to come up and put it at the foot of the cross. And if you cannot make it, if you're not able to walk up here, 
hand it to someone next to you and say, take it to the cross for me. Jesus wants to give us life. Jesus invites us to follow him. Part of Lent, part of entering into this season is recognizing the ways that our hearts and our minds and our lives go astray and saying, God, I want more of you. Speak to me, move in me that I might experience your life. I'm gonna pray for us. And as we sing this song, I just invite you, center yourself into the presence of God. And then come up when you're ready and lay them at the cross. Jesus, we are both Lazarus, we are Mary, we are Martha. God, we are in the brokenness of this world, but God, we want to see your resurrection power. God, we want to see the life that you offer, God, flow through our lives, and we want to be transformed in your presence. God, we want to be able to receive your invitation. We don't want to balk in fear or anxiety or worry. God, we want to respond. God, we want to be your faithful presence on earth that people know your truth and experience your life. You are a good father. Move among us. God, we lay the barriers, the burdens, the distractions, the fears, all that, the foot of your cross. Come, Lord.